Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. I think the first three verses here are the most important for today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this continued time of deliberation where we wrestle before you with how we might more faithfully, more tactfully engage not just the culture around us, but individual people. Help us, Lord, to be discerning, wise, gracious, gentle, eager to listen to others, eager to meditate upon your word, eager to see the two meet. We pray for more wisdom, more grace in this time as we wrestle together before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. These first three verses remind us, when we engage other people, there is no one who is neutral. No one who is without a religion. We know from Romans 1 that people are actively suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. They're actively working. The spiritual battle is going on. They at least, but for most people, at least consciously, they are unaware. Uh, one of our jobs is to reveal this battle to them. Reveal the fact that they are following the course of this world. They are following the prince of the power of the air. That they are living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of their bodies and minds. They are religious. And this religion is actively impacting them every day. But right now, their masters are sin and Satan. One of our fundamental goals is to try to help them pry off the fingers of sin and Satan, ultimately using the gospel. Now, the past couple of weeks, as we've been meeting together, We've wrestled with several different pieces here. First of all, the fundamental contention that everybody is religious. Remember, that was our first week. And we have a responsibility to counsel. We're all gifted to counsel. We do this all the time anyways. But this is a large part of what it means to love your neighbor, starting with the household of God, but also others. It is to 
engage their backgrounds, engage their, engage their beliefs with the gospel, ultimately. And so we survey people's backgrounds. We want to hear testimonies of unbelief. By the way, it's good to see you, Stephen and Marcus. Great to see you this morning. We want to hear people's testimonies of unbelief. What happened in their backgrounds? It doesn't necessarily have to be traumatic, in though most cases nowadays it is. But we under, want to understand why they tick the way they do. It is so easy, and forgive me if this sounds harsh, so lazy to just say, well, clearly it's sin at work in their lives. How is sin at work in their lives? How are they following the prince of the power of the air? Where are they submitting to the flesh? We want to go through their background to try to understand these things better. It forms bonds with people. They feel loved and listened to. It helps them understand themselves better, and it gives us more data points with which to engage them. We went from there to talking about exposing their beliefs. So you've been able to survey the background with folks, and now you want to understand uh, what are their false identities? Their idols, their false ideals. Pastor Brett reminded me last week that uh, false idols is kind of redundant. <laughs> All idols are false. Uh, they're false identities, they're idols, they're false ideals. We all have them. Again, everybody is religious. We want to expose that. What is it that you're actually living for? And a lot, and a lot of it is shaped by the past. You're usually not getting this from your peers, you're not getting this from TV. You're getting this by the way in which you were raised. These are the people who shaped these fundamental concepts in your lives. And so this week, I want to talk more, not just like about exposing beliefs, but engaging beliefs. And even here, I'm not going to talk about as much about Scripture intentionally and the Christian belief system. That will be next week. Or perhaps in two weeks, uh, whenever I teach, teach next, that's when we'll talk explicitly about how we bring the gospel to bear upon unbelief. Right now, I want to show that whatever people are living for apart from Christ is not sufficient. It's not meeting the mark, it's meaningless. And now that we've been able to survey the false identities, idols, false ideals, we can start showing that. Uh, and by the way, an advantage of this is we're not called upon yet to defend the gospel. There's a time and a place for that. We always must be ready to give a defense. And yet people are always trying to put us on our heels about our faith. They're always trying to get us to explain ourselves, justify ourselves, why we can possibly believe what it is we believe. Right now, hopefully, we're at the point of these conversations that they're the ones, in a sense, we don't want to put them on the defensive, but they're the ones on their heels. All of a sudden they realize, wait a second, I'm religious and I didn't know it. And I've got all these assumptions that guide the whole way in which I'm living, this whole edifice, this whole enterprise of life that's unjustified, uh, that has not been examined, that is not working. And that's what we're going to show, that these things are not working. You have a belief system, and it's insufficient. So in order to do that, uh, let me introduce a couple of tests. And again, I'm always looking for your guys' feedback on this. Uh, counseling others, dealing with human nature, dealing with people is an art, not a science. We often try to reduce it to a science. It's not. 
human nature does not lend itself to just being tightly compartmentalized and tightly scrutinized. If any of you who have kids, you understand. Uh, there's no quantifiable products in the day. You're like, job well done. No, it's an art, not a science. And the same as, as I talk about engaging other people. I didn't have terms for these tests I employ when I counsel other people until this week. I've come up with terms to help in the process of teaching. But you can help think through these things with me and help me refine my thinking. Here's a couple tests that we can put people to as we engage their false identities and their idols. The love test. This is the first one, the love test. Has this and can this bring you love? This is not just a wishy-washy category, you know, you want, you want to feel loved. You got to understand, think back to Viktor Frankl, that psychoanalyst who survived the Holocaust. He said our lives are not fundamentally about a will to power, like, uh, like Nietzsche would say. It's not fundamentally about a will to pleasure, like Freud would say. It's a will to meaning. We all want to know why we're here. We want to know why we're in this world and why we're living, what our purpose is, uh, who we are. It's a will to meaning. And part and parcel of that is we want to be loved. We have to be loved. So much of what we do in this world is about that desire to be loved. We were created to be loved. We were created in God's image to walk before him in the cool of the day. So the love test. We're talking about your identity, your idols. Has this and can this bring you love? Or are you sniffing around in the wrong places? This can be a very emotional question. That's the first test. And I'm going to give exa- an example in a few minutes where we apply all these tests and hopefully see how it works out. The second test, the change test. What happens when circumstances change? We have a lot of soldiers who find their identity in their uniform. They didn't have a sufficient identity growing up, they know that. They go to the army, and this is where they can finally get a leg up on life. It's this uniform here that finally gives them a sense of moral purpose and identity. What happens when the uniform comes off? Uh, a lot of our soldiers, they get, we call it med-boarded out. For medical reasons, they get pushed out. Or disciplinary reasons. At some point, we all hang up the uniform. It applies to the soldier of just a couple of years who gets pushed out, or the first sergeant who has been in for 25 or 30 years. What happens when you take the uniform off? What happens when circumstances change? How does that affect your identity and your idols? Third test, the authority test. The authority test. So the question here is, where did you get this identity or idol from? Is it trustworthy? So why are these the things you're living for? Why is this how you identify yourself? Why are these the things that you hold most dear? Where did that come from? Uh, and is that thing worthy of being called God in your life? Again, a lot of these things come from our, our upbringing. And are those who shaped our identity and our idols, are they worth having in the role of God? Uh, even if you had a wonderful parent, uh, do, do they ha- deserve that God-like role in your life? Where are the ones fundamentally shaping who you are? Uh, for most pe- young people, especially nowadays, they didn't have a particularly good parent. 
And so why would you let the person who hurt you have this sort of role? Again, everybody nowadays says hashtag never again. It's not just today. We always say, we always see our parents' insufficiencies. My kids are going to see mine. And we're going to say, well, I'm never going to do that. Except we have, a, we have a model. Our parents are our models. So everybody says hashtag never again. And then a couple years later, they're doing the exact same thing their parents did. Because that's their example. It's easy to say we do differently. Uh, but that's, it's been seeped into our bones from the earliest years. So that's the authority test. Finally, the suffering test. What happens when life gets hard? So many of our false identities, so many of our idols, work perfectly well as coping mechanisms until we go off the rails. Uh, the person who lives for that pleasure and just the numbness that comes with constant drinking and alcoholism, constant drunkenness, what happens if you get pulled over for the DUI? Uh, for the person uh, who is living for pleasure, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That pleasure only lasts for so long. It doesn't have to just be alcohol. Uh, inappropriate relationship with people, that's very hollow. Uh, the aftermath of that uh, leaves you incredibly depressed in its wake. What, ha- what uh, if you are living to be loved. What happens when the love breaks? What happens, this is not just circumstances change, but what happens when your life hits suffer, uh, when your life meets suffering? There's so many things that hold up when everything is stable. But when life goes off the rails, when it goes off the rails, do these identities and idols maintain you? Are they sufficient? Now before I give an example to kind of walk us through all this, Do these principles make sense to you guys? Are there any questions here? Okay. Uh, Let me give an example. It will be someone I call the prodigal worker. It's really a compilation of a number of uh, soldiers and people in church I've counseled over the years. The prodigal worker. So you remember the prodigal son parable. The term prodigal means basically spending lavishly. we always know the prodigal younger brother was the one who spent his father's resources lavishly, just squandered them on reckless living. The older brother was also prodigal. He squandered his life not on wandering, but on work. Uh, he poured his life and found his identity in work. His idol probably being recognized for his work. But the prodigal worker, let's talk about someone, again, this can represent a lot of people, you don't have to be in a traumatic household uh, to have this idol. This is an idol that fits a lot of people in our society, especially with relatively stable households. My father taught me that the most important thing was work. So you've already gone through someone's background with them. And they've been taught or they've learned from their father's example that work and providing for your family is the most important thing. A pretty normal thing in American culture, right? At least old school American culture. Maybe it's changing now. It's something that probably a good number of you were raised with. And not in and of itself like a bad thing. It's not the ultimate thing, but it's good to work hard and provide for your family, right? But my father taught me that the most important thing, the most important thing was work and providing for your family. So coming out of that, an identity will often look like something along the lines of, uh, I am a good worker who comes through for his family. That's who I am. 
you know, one of the ways I try to get at people's identities, you know, most people, when you ask them, who are you, they look at, you know, it's deer in the headlights. What do you want on your tombstone? What do you want people to remember you by? That's, that's another way to try to get at their fundamental identity. I am a good worker who comes through for his family. And there's a lot of people, especially men, I think, who have that idol, that false identity and idol. So that's the identity. The idol, so related to that, the identity is I am a good worker who comes through for his family. So what are you living for? The idol would often be something along the lines of, uh, I want my father's approval and recognize success at work. So either I want my father's approval now that I'm an adult for the way in which I work and succeed and provide for my family, or proxies. I want other people, especially superiors, to recognize the job I'm doing, how good I'm doing at work, and how I'm providing for my family. So that's often idle. So I'm living now for others' applause and approval. I can relate to these things too. This is part of my like, false religious structure that I have to fight against. So let's put these things to the test. So you were raised with work at the core. Your fundamental purpose in life is to be a good worker and provide for your family. You've got this false identity of, I am a good worker who provides for my family. You've got a false idol, uh, which is getting the approval of my father or father-like figures, superiors, people who applaud this false identity of mine. Uh, let's put it to the love test. Uh, in fact, I did this, I, I can say this without giving away any details on a soldier's life, because again, this is so many soldiers uh, that have struggled with this, so many people in our society. But I was actually counseling a soldier with this this past week, and I applied these tests. So the love test. Let's apply the love test. Uh, does this identity, does this idol, bring you love? Has it and can it? Let me ask you guys. If you find your identity primarily in your work, if you're living for the approval of others in this way, does it bring you love? Not rhetorical, yes or no? Does this sort of identity and idol bring you love? <coughs> yes. Yeah, I like what you just said too, Stephen. Uh, how would the, how would we know that this is false love? What's that? Yeah, well, it's, it's not sustainable. If someone's loving us for our work, is it real love? But, yeah, uh, oftentimes as people have these identities and idols, they'll be upset about the fact that. Work was the primary thing valued growing up because it didn't bring them love growing up. Uh, is a wife ever going to say, you know what, I, f- I fell in love with you because you're a hard worker? Uh, are your kids going to say, are, gonna, are they going to grow up saying, I know my dad loved me because he worked so hard? Uh, these things don't communicate in love in and of themselves. And love is also, can you earn love? Uh, that's one of the struggles that a lot of people have. They always felt the need to earn love if this is the way they were raised or this is the way they're living now. I need to earn love. I need to work for that love. Uh, is it love it has, if it has to be worked for? And does that mean you are loved inherently if you've got to work for it? It's an impossible goal. When is, when, how much do you have to work to get that love? 
It's an impossible goal. Let's put it to the change test. What happens when things change? So again, I'll throw this out to you guys. It won't just be rhetorical. If somebody who finds their identity in work all of a sudden loses their job, what do you think that's going to do to them? They're going to be crushed. You, you guys have probably all seen this at some point or another, right? Again, especially men. Uh, I think men are notorious. I think oftentimes, again, broad stereotypes. A lot of times, women, if they have kids, will find their identity in, their, in being a mother. Uh, and can be crushed in that way if they're criticized for it, uh, if they're comparing themselves to others. Again, broad stereotype, not always the case. Men, a lot of times, especially, it's in work and it's in accomplishments. And you see this, when a man loses his job, it can often wreck him. It's not where his identity fundamentally is, at least we know that. Biblically, we know that. But you tell that to the guy who just lost his job. My dad spiraled in his depression because he was a small business owner and provided for my family so my mom could be a stay-at-home mom. And then that all came tumbling down within about a year or two, and that wrecked him. He's He's a believer. Uh, but like the rest of us, he struggles with false identities, false idols. It crushed him. Uh, so the change test. What happens when this changes? Not if. Circumstances always change, right? If you find your primary identity uh, in being a great dad, uh, what happens when your kid goes off the rails? Uh, I like to think of myself as being a pretty involved, attentive dad. What happens when I'm chasing my tantruming three-year-old through the parking lot, trying to catch them, and realizing how incredible fast they are at, at three years old, and everybody's watching, and I'm making a spectacle of myself? Man, if I'm finding my identity there, I'm, that's going to be pretty rough. So the change test. Again, now with this prodigal worker. The authority test. Who taught me that this was the most important thing? Or who taught you that this was the most important thing? Uh, how did that make you feel growing up? Uh, is that person uh, worth basing your self-worth on, your identity on? Again, I applied this test to somebody recently. I uh, grew up in a house in which work was everything. And this person is now struggling because this all because idols tend to consume us and false identities tend to consume us. We're living for these things. If anything threatens them, we carefully guard them. And so recently, for one one person, this false identity and idol was threatened because this was what he was living for, and it ended up causing because it was threatened by a circumstance in his life became a huge issue. He reacted very poorly. Okay, this is the way you were raised. That makes you really upset this is the way you were raised. In a sense, love was based on work. It felt like you were loved as much as you worked. And yet here you are making work the most important thing. Why would you allow the person who taught you this thing which hurt you growing up to occupy that place? And really... What is that place? It's the place of God. We're going to give authority to somebody or something. Uh, Why why does your dad occupy the place of God? And how's that working out? 
You know, again, we always say hashtag never again, and then we fall back into these patterns. So if the authority test, finally the prodigal worker, the suffering test. What happens when your life goes off the rails? Not just the change in a job. Let's say that the job is doing just fine, but your marriage is totally going off the rails. Is being a good worker going to sustain you? Make you feel good about yourself? What happens when you are suffering and you're trying to understand, why am I suffering this world? Why does it hurt? What is my place? What is my purpose? And all you've got is this. So you see in, in part how those, how those tests work. It's never so neat and cut and dry. And you never want to go up to somebody and say, okay, let's apply the love test. But these are questions. These are avenues for discussion, rabbit trails that you can go down. I've probably done this with a couple of you in this church and just casual conversations. I do it with myself. Uh, I know I do it with my soldiers. These are always fruitful avenues of conversation. And they're helpful for all of us. Again, if you had, you know, we had, in a sense, informal homework. I didn't officially assign it. I won't do that for Sunday school. But informal homework from last, the last time we met together. What are your false identities, idols, ideals? Now you can apply these tests. If you've been able to do some dig work, some spade work on your own heart, okay, you've uprooted a couple of these. Apply these tests. Again, this is like ground zero for your sanctification. Uh, in a sense, it's Psalm 139. Uh, search me. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. You're letting the Lord take the scalpel to your heart. You're unearthing these things in your own heart, but also you're seeing their insufficiency, the things that you're living for. The more the Lord exposes these things to you, it's really also the conviction of your sin, the more you're driven to the gospel, the more he will drive you to the gospel. Now, there's one piece I left out here, and that was false ideals. So these are how you can start kicking over the idols, start uprooting those false identities. How about false ideals? So what is it that you ultimately want? What is it you ultimately want? We all have this vision of what it is we ultimately want in life, and usually it's the opposite of what we were raised with. Uh, now, if you had a really good household, maybe it's a continuation of what you're raised with. But again, it's very much shaped by our families. I brought this up last time. We see all the, the, all the apparent insufficiencies in our background, and that is our view of the fall. That is our view of human brokenness. For some, it might even be their view of hell. And heaven's future can be the opposite of that. Again, if, it's a, if you had a really stable childhood, maybe it's like a, a continuation or perfection of that. But we have this false view of salvation, this false view of arrival, what arrival looks like. So for the prodigal worker, uh, what is it that you are ultimately living for? What is that beautiful view on the horizon? I told you guys before, what Chaplain Fari helped me see last year is my false horizon, my false salvation, what I viewed arrival as was 1950s Americana suburbia. I just wanted a place, a neighborhood, where there were real families, intact families, that weren't so horribly broken. Uh, real communities, backyard barbecues. Uh, I, I just wanted a place where it didn't feel like everything was falling apart around me. Because that's what I deal with in my job all the time, and it's just like my childhood. Just like Chaplain Fari helped me see. I didn't like 
the background which I was raised in, and since I can thank God for it now, but it's incredibly painful, incredibly dark, incredibly hopeless, and everywhere I look right now, I see that around me. I think probably the people who you'll sometimes find are the most cynical, ironically, are your ministers. Uh, it's are your Christian caregivers, because we're dealing so much with the brokenness of the world. We're just elbow deep in this, uh, and it can be very dispiriting. Uh, it's so 1950 suburbia. And again, Chapafari is like, hey, uh, that's, that's not heaven. Uh, that is a false view of heaven. Uh, that's not the city that you should be living for. You should be living for, like the saints of old, whose builder and maker is God. And by the way, 1950 suburbia, if you've seen Mad Men, it wasn't so hot. Uh, especially for certain people groups in our society, it wasn't so great. Uh, the false view of salvation for the prodigal worker here, or false ideal, is that in 30 or 40 years, he can say, I have worked as hard as I can work for as long as I can work and provided for my family. Again, you guys will recognize this, especially those of you who have a couple more years on me. Uh, when people hit retirement, again, especially men, when they retire, is that often a crisis point in life? What the heck do I do? My whole identity is bound up my whole life and being this worker, hard worker, hard worker, endless hours, sometimes at the exclusion of time with my family, super hard worker, doing the right thing, providing for my family because that's my role, and now, and then I'm going to retire and just enjoy the fruits of all this, and it seems incredibly hollow. Uh, again, I see this over and over. Uh, people who retire and the, the depression that sets in, uh, they finally arrive. See, most of these people, they have these false views of salvation, and they never get to the point they've decided is that false view of salvation, that point of arrival. Some of them, sadly, do get to that point. And that's even worse, because you realize how hollow it truly is. So with this false ideal for the prodigal worker, I've been a hard worker all my life, provided for my family, as hard as I could, as long as I could. A couple questions to ask with regard to false ideals. Where did that dream come from? And why is it worth living for? So why do you think that this is the ultimate arrival point? Why, are you, why is this your tra- trajectory? Why are you aiming for it? And is it really worth living for? You, you, get, you allow people to paint that picture of the future. And it's, I don't think it's too hard to show how hollow that picture can get, can be, even from afar. What happens if you never get there? What happens if you don't arrive? Can you still live a satisfactory life? I counseled one soldier years ago who was one of the pioneers in the U.S. Army for gay rights and repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. In his whole life, and he and I were good friends, uh, we would go at it all the time in Afghanistan. We'd just go out for dinner to like dig into these issues. His whole life was oriented around gay rights, the pursuit of equal rights in our society and in the world. Not just our society. Oh, he made sure it was global in scope. Oh, he felt deeply when in African countries they didn't have the same view of gay rights that he did. And his whole life was fixed around this idea of like social justice crusader and warrior. I remember asking him, brother, what if nothing changes? 
What if nothing changes in Uganda? Are you still going to feel okay? Are you going to still feel like you have a sense of purpose in your life? What happens if you never achieve these ends? What happens when you do achieve these ends? And he just had such a hard time with that. Uh, there's, he had no sense of identity or purpose apart from this. You take away this crusading, he had nothing. That's why he was so wrapped up in it. So what happens if you never get there? What happens if you do get there? And for me, that's the even scarier prospect. Also, who is the one who's going to get you there? Is he or she trustworthy? This is another big piece. We all have this false view of what a rival should look like, where we want to go, where we want to be. Who's going to get us there? Guess what? We are the change we've been waiting for. In this system, who plays the part of Savior? It's you. Do you really want yourself on that throne? That's a pretty scary prospect. I don't, I mean, day after day, I often try to put myself on that throne. If I think about it for a second, I don't want to be on that throne. I know how I could screw up my life. All right. Who are we putting on the throne with these false views of salvation? It always comes back to us. And we know better. Because if we really did have that superhuman power, that divine power, uh, then we would get there now. Uh, we would already have arrived. So again, do these questions make sense? That poking and prodding at these false ideals. Any questions there? Yes, Charlie. Mm-hmm. But more often than not, if we're engaging in somebody who is, say, coming from the world, um, we are not starting at the same places. Mm-hmm. And meeting for them, one of the questions that you're asking, right? Or if we get our meeting, uh, meeting for them is self derived, and everything that you're saying is all well and it's good for you, but I get to determine my meaning, my ends, my goals. Mm-hmm. That's a great point, Charlie. Uh, so let's combine like false ideals here with the false identity and idols. Uh, before, we don't want to just jump to ideals, and I think this might address what you're getting at. This, this train of thought we just engaged in, you don't want to immediately go there. This is, this is part of the hubris of Christian outreach in the past and evangelism. We want to go out and tell everybody, hey, your lives are hopeless and meaningless, so come embrace the gospel. Like, just scattershot, carpet bomb people with the gospel in this way. Most of them don't agree with that. Most of them are going to say, yeah, my life is hopeless. My life is meaningless. Uh, they may actually have a really cushy life right now, at least on the surface. They might be earning the six figures. Uh, they might have a really happy, stable marriage. They might really be enjoying all the pleasure that they're driving right now in life. Uh, it's so to convince them, hey, your life is meaningless or purposelessness or purposeless, or that you shouldn't be on the throne of your own life. It, you're right. If you just went there, you'd be running smack dab into that freight train that is our culture, because our culture is incredibly narcissistic. It absolutely is about me. I should be the one determining whether whether or not I should be doing this or that. 
I'm responsible for my own happiness. The thing is, if we've already gone through their background and touched on identity and idols, then they've already seen the insufficiency of that. If we jump to ideals, uh, then yes, we're, gonna, we're just going to have a battle of the wills and a clash of worldviews. But we've already shown them, Lord willing, uh, that they can't trust themselves with the keys of their own life. Uh, that's what we're doing by exposing the false identity and idols. Uh, remember, beneath the narcissism here, the idea that I'm responsible for my own happiness, I need to do whatever makes me happy, uh, is nihilism. It's meaninglessness. Uh, I need to do this because I feel desperately hopeless and meaningless apart from this. Uh, it's us trying to keep ourselves safe. Uh, we use pleasure as the veneer. Uh, and so we're helping expose that nihilism too. And so, right, this is all this. Do you, can you see how complex this is? How much faith all this is required? How much energy they are putting in, devising an entire system and living by it? Like, you can see the whole contours of their religious system here. And it takes so much effort to maintain. Again, it's a blessed relief for a lot of folks when we help unearth this. Yeah, brother? Well, that's just that's not only an excellent question. I appreciate the vulnerability that you just displayed in that question. You just gave me a little glimpse of your own life and own heart, and that that's that's painful. Uh, uh, so maybe a distinction to be made here is you sh- yes, suffering is involved there. The question is whether this identity is ultimate. We, there's a grieving process involved. We should allow for that. Yeah, uh, and I. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Uh, should you grieve the loss of a job? Yeah, should you grieve the transitions? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I realize this, like my soldiers are half my age, and like they can, get, they can party all night and like run a faster PT time than, even, than me, even when I'm in peak shape. Like they just stumble out the gate, uh, still like half-wasted, and they're running like a 13-minute two-mile. I'm like, what the heck? Like, uh, I'm getting older. Uh, and I struggle with this, too. Uh, we're losing precious moments with our kids. Uh, we're about to move to North Carolina in five months, and we're having to say bye to a lot of people we love. Uh, if it absolutely wrecks us and we are, we're hopeless and beyond consolation, well, there we've found some idols 
and some and false identity, false uh, ideals. But it's natural to grief. So I think it's a really helpful nuance, brother. We've got to allow room for that. Uh, in terms of transitioning, I mean, that's a, a whole different ball of wax. But yeah, it's walking through the grieving process. Every time we suffer in that way, like, it's like a death. You're standing at the funeral of a, of a part of your life that you've got to say bye to. I think and that's a great observation. Uh, and we'd sort of give this more, but I remember something that Pastor Phil Proctor once uh, said at one of our gatherings back in Northern Virginia. Uh, we weren't made for transitions. We weren't made for those. We were made for Eden. We were in the city. Like, we had our home. Uh, transitions, uh, while God can use them in beautiful ways, it reminds us of our pilgrim existence. We're wandering through a wilderness here. Now, God is planting blooms and blossoms along the way, uh, but they remind us that we live in a broken world, uh, how our hearts long for heaven, uh, the real arrival point. But yeah, to the transitions are painful, and they should uh, be painful. If they aren't, and again, I often tell people, when if something hard happens and I don't see them struggling, that's when I think there's a problem. That's when I'm concerned. I, I love it when people cry. And I, I, because that's an adequate response. Uh, let's, let's hit you first, brother, and I'll hit Pat, and then we'll close up. Yeah. Yeah, I think, again, it's a, and that's a good uh, question, Marcus. Again, it's a matter of perspective. It is, they can be good things. They can't be a great thing. You can't squeeze purpose and meaning and identity out of those things. And so, can they be good? Can you derive some satisfaction and joy from them? Sure, if they're a good thing and not the God thing. Uh, and it's keep, keeping that separate. That's a really good question, brother. Yes, Pat. Mm-hmm. As a believer, we are shown constantly by our Lord through the seasons. Mm-hmm. And so we call them seasons of life. Yeah. As to working with, uh, working, working, working with children, watching them grow, understanding those transitions. God takes us through a change of seasons every year. Yeah. So, we, so in these seasons, in a sense, we grieve as those with hope. 
uh, we grieve the past, you know, certain seasons. Uh, we look forward to where the Lord's province would take us next. It's going to be different, but he still calls us to faithfulness, to grow in his grace. Uh, and we look forward to when, uh, since when the journey finally stops too. Uh, and we can have that transcendent, oh, moment. And he wipes every tear from our eyes. But thank you. I especially love hearing, again, from a, a sister and mother in the Lord who's got a couple years on me, that perspective of uh, how God cares for us through the seasons. I love talking to folks who can say, these 50-some years I've walked with the Lord and he has been faithful every step of the way. Oh, what it, that helps younger folks like me. I'm, I'm twice age of you guys. But it helps younger folks like me uh, through my own transitions of life, seeing how God has been faithful to folks like you. Uh, if you have any more questions, let me know. We'll discuss them offline. Your homework, informal, unofficial, if you've already been searching through your life for these false identities, idols, uh, false ideals, start taking a scalpel to them, put them to the test, ask these questions. And since that's the Lord's providence guiding you by the hand through the dark recesses of your hearts, there's so much grace, so much grace for all these things. Take over the idols, uproot the false identities, cast aside the false ideals, and look to see how the Christian system, the biblical worldview, God's love for you throughout history uh, is so much more fulfilling and satisfactory. And that's what we'll talk about next week. We're going to finally get to how do we now plug the gospel, and we've shown the insufficiency of all these other things. Let's show why only the gospel is sufficient, only the gospel is meaningful. We're not saying that it stands a chance. It is the only thing that works, the only thing in this world, and hopefully we brought them to a point where they can at least understand that, even if they haven't embraced it yet. Let's pray. Lord, please prepare our hearts for your worship. We long to encounter Jesus today through the preaching of your word. It's painful, but we long to be convicted of our sin, to have those false identities uprooted, the idols kicked over, the false ideals cast aside, See if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. Lord, we need it. So often we're so sin-blind and deceived in and of ourselves that we don't even know uh, what these things are and where they're at. All we see is their effects. Usually those who love us can see it better than we can. Help us in the communion of your saints, of your people, together before your word, to root these things out, to lay them before you, uh, and to know that we are washed in the blood of Jesus. Remind us now in the coming hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.